Hello from DBS Asia Central. It's the 27th of February, 2020. This is Kopi Time, a podcast series on economies and global markets. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, your host for the next 30 minutes. We are presently inundated with the COVID-19 outbreak and issues around that, and we'll be covering our latest forecast and analysis on the fallout in considerable detail during our Macro Insights livestream on the 2nd of March. Uh, and we have been doing it in the past, we'll do it in the future, but today's podcast is not about that. We will try to take a break from such blanket coverage of the Wuhan virus epidemic slash pandemic. Instead, we are aiming today for something refreshingly different. To do that, our guest today is Slava Schillen, whose day job is to analyze credit markets in the region, but that is not what we have him here today. Slava is here because he has a very interesting background, which lends to rather interesting insights. He is of Russian origin, has UK nationality, has been based in Singapore for nearly a decade, and most interestingly, he is fluent, almost fluent in Mandarin. He has also traveled extensively through China for business and pleasure. Slava, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Tamo. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. First off, I guess we have to ask you the obvious. What got you so interested in China uh, that you had to learn the language, which is a really hard one? And tell us how hard actually was it to pick up Mandarin? Um, to start answering this question, I think I just have to probably say uh, why I moved to Singapore to begin with. Uh, my family, uh, including my wife and my children, are ex big fans of uh, Asian culture, uh, Asian lifestyle, um, uh, including the weather, of course. Uh, been based in the UK for 10 years before that. Um, gets you longing for sunshine <laughs> quite a lot. Um, and uh, we um, moved to Asia you know, to get exposure to all of that uh, life and um, ancestral sort of uh, background, um, it's impossible sort of not to be exposed to Chinese language and uh, uh, Chinese lifestyle living in Singapore, which was a great revelation to us. Uh, and uh, uh, I, uh, it took me real quick to realize that uh, living in Asia and building your career, uh, building your life here is impossible uh, without having a direct exposure to uh, Chinese language and culture. And I am a big fan of foreign languages. I learned quite a few in the past, including Italian, French, uh, of course, English. Uh, and uh, then I decided that I want to try Chinese. Um, and very quickly after I started my uh, journey into Chinese language, I realized that it's a long-term journey and I am completely in love with it. Um, I really feel that Chinese language is coming somewhere from the heart. When people speak, they are not simply saying words using their vocal cords. They are really using their soul and their hearts and the way they pronounce the sounds, the way they uh, put the sentence structures. Uh, it's really uh, passionate, really emotional and really deep. And this is my biggest commitment uh, in life, apart from being married to my wife for almost 19 years now. Um, uh, and I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I just wanted to maybe say here is that I know a lot of people, a lot of foreigners uh, who begin their journey into Chinese language and culture and they stop at just picking up the speaking part of it. But I thoroughly enjoy the, the whole range of uh, the language, including uh, reading and writing. And I thoroughly recommend uh, to anyone who decides to uh, embark on this journey, please go all the way. 
Do not stop just at the speaking part because you're missing out massively on understanding the lifestyle, the intricacies of thinking, of culture, of uh, how China ticks, basically. Uh, that's why I don't even have to push myself uh, every day to learn it uh, further. I just keep going. So as I say, as Chinese say, jiao. That's probably the answer to this question. But it is very different from any other language you've learned in your life. It is definitely different in technical terms and also in terms of the uh, the grammar, uh, etc. Because it's pictographic, it's impossible to guess how. I mean, it actually it is when you reach a certain level to guess how the certain character is pronounced. But unlike any other alphabet-based language, you cannot remember uh, how to pronounce this unless you actually memorize. Uh, that's why, without practice, without doing your homework, this language is probably the easiest to forget. That's what makes it difficult. And also, uh, probably, the more advanced uh, level you achieve, uh, I guess you can say, the more lost you get, because this language is extremely moody. And you can s use uh, five different ways of saying, I'm sorry, ten ways of giving affirmative answers, and things like that. So... You just probably need to uh, make your picks and uh, carry on. So it's been six years since you picked up the language and you have attained some fairly advanced degree of proficiency, mm -hmm. although you stress that I don't say you're fluent in the language. That was very <laughs> humble of you. Almost fluent, yes. Uh, but Slava, so are you basically then saying that Singapore has a fairly well-established infrastructure for expats to learn Mandarin? Definitely. Um, I would say... Even we are in Asia, uh, you can definitely learn literally any uh, mainstream language of the world, be it Spanish, be it Japanese, be it Arabic. So uh, I actually know friends who do it. So that's why I'm uh, quite confident in uh, making this statement. Now, when you say that it is equally important to learn how to read and write the language as opposed to just learning it, uh, learning, talking, speaking the language, um, are you saying that from a professional angle that, you know, to understand company balance sheets is useful or this is very much of a personal perspective? It is coming from the angle of the fact that Chinese language uh, has a lot of philosophy behind it. And to understand the philosophy uh, of Chinese culture, you actually need to read the characters to be able to read them. Because the way the characters are constructed can tell you a lot of why stories, funny stories, the, the ones that you probably will never pick up in any other alphabet-based language. I know it's pretty basic, but just to give you an example, you know, when you write a character, uh, you have a uh, character that consists of uh, different uh, radicals. So you take your left side, you put the uh, radical uh, depicting uh, a woman. Then you take a radical depicting a man. Together, when you put it together, it means good. Interesting. So Ni Hao, the famous Ni Hao, is the, the uh, part Hao, is the woman and the man together, which means good. Uh, or another example, you take uh, the sun and the moon, you put them together, and it means uh, bright. So what can be the brightest as sun and moon put together? So this is how you... St uh, these are very basic examples. But the more you uh, learn the language, the more of these examples you go through, you start to think 
what is sort of uh, the philosophy behind it? What were the fathers of the nation thousands of years ago thinking about uh, uh, the language, especially that this language has uh, probably it's one of the rare examples where, you know, China being uh, probably is uh, one of the or maybe the only ancient civilization, which is uh, equally ancient as the Egyptian, which is still here. Right. Um, and the language went through the, the same um, uh, evolution, meaning it started as really uh, the ancient pictographic Chinese, where you can say it was designed to be written on the stone, on you know piece of wood. Uh, and the characters have been evolving uh, quite a few times. And the ones that we see now are uh, probably more of the technical uh, reflection of the original meaning. Uh, but if you know this, you can really relate to uh, what is behind uh, the language, which is really important. So it's not about the grammar or understanding the financial statements, um, but really actually also trying to get the message between the lines, so to say. But I, I want to stay on that subject a little longer, which is that, let's say there are a lot of publicly listed Chinese companies, many of them are listed in the U.S. stock market. Uh, when they raise um, bond issuances, they issue prospectus. A lot of this stuff is in English. But are we still at the point where knowing Mandarin and being able to read a lot of those documents in the original form or going to the websites in the Mandarin version still gives somebody an edge? Or have we reached the point where it's not that important anymore? Uh, China is, is it's a very interesting point, Taimo. But uh, I, I can say that China is uh, perhaps one of the few countries in the world where knowing the language still gives you a competitive edge. Even if you're dealing with the Chinese banks that are the biggest banks on the planet, you'd be surprised that uh, speaking English is very, it's secondary. You definitely have time advantage, you definitely have uh, uh, the decision-making advantage, the access to information, uh, the depth of the information, uh, if you can read uh, Mandarin. What about the fact that some people say that, well, even if you do speak the language, you're a foreigner and you will never be able to disarm um, cynical Chinese. Give us some personal examples where you've actually managed to bring down barriers and it has helped you actually. Uh, it doesn't have to be professional. It could be personal. It could be just a day-to-day -day occurrence where surprising somebody with your knowledge of Mandarin has been helpful. I have to say this is uh, one of the fascinating facts when even in being in Singapore uh, and just randomly dropping something like, uh, you know, like I'm really sorry, in the conversation with the uh, local Singaporean Chinese person uh, brings out an excitement and a smile and uh, uh, a lot of uh, associated positive emotions because people do not expect a... Caucasian person, for example, speak Chinese language at all. And that is uh, definitely present uh, in China as well, where uh, people just simply do not expect you to know the language. And that's why, uh, you know, when you have no expectations, succeeding those expectations is very easy. <laughs> you don't have to be a rocket scientist to uh, surprise uh, local Chinese with your uh, knowledge of the language. But as in many cases, the trick is if that if you say something, there is always a risk that they will respond back. <laughs> and they, and it's sort of like a um, rolling snowball uh, that uh, they get excited, they start speaking faster, and then you run into this difficulty where you have to then say, okay, 
slow down. <laughs> yeah, slow down. Um, but uh, I face the situation almost daily. Okay, so that takes us to your travel experiences. Mm-hmm. You've been to China quite a few times in recent years, haven't you? Uh, indeed. And uh, what takes you to China? Is it work-related or also personal uh, interest that takes you to China? I think it's a, uh, it's a similar case with uh, many other countries which I visited uh, in my life that uh, my first visit is always through work. Uh, there's a business trip or some conference uh, that I have to attend. And then the, the, the more I go, the more I get interested on a personal level. I want to take my family there. I want to explore more. To uh, I love going off the beaten track, as people say. And uh, that's why um, all the subsequent visits to China were more uh, of the personal nature. And yeah. you've been to off the beaten track as in tier two, tier three cities? Uh, indeed. And also um, climbing mountains, going along the rivers and uh, staying in, as you say, in the not sort of mainstream cities, uh, but uh, definitely uh, trying to gain as much experience as possible uh, on what is it uh, uh, that the real life is all about in China. So let's start with your latest trip to China. Didn't you spend a large part of last summer in China? Uh, Indeed, uh, it was my uh, dream to go to China for a few weeks on a so-called language and culture immersion course uh, where you stay either with the family uh, or somewhere uh, in a, uh, not in the hotel, basically. Uh, and you learn Mandarin intensively, uh, maybe five or six hours a day, uh, depending on what uh, type of the language you want to pick up, whether this is general or business. And uh, you also have a lot of extracurricular activities that, uh, okay, you can ask some uh, travel agents to uh, choose for you. But what I prefer is to uh, give myself a lot of interesting daily tasks in uh, going out of the box, sort of uh, leaving my comfort zone and trying to explore the country, throw myself into real-life situations where I have to deal with everything myself, um, dealing with different accents uh, and uh, trying to solve problems that I create for myself. So that's what was exciting last summer uh, when I went to uh, Nanjing, uh, which is the capital of Jiangsu province and also spend some time in Anhui. Um, uh, so those two provinces the most. Um, and got the on-the-ground feeling of how it is uh, to <laughs> mix amongst the locals. So what kind of specific tasks were you setting yourself up for your day-to-day adventures? Um, I just wanted to, at this point, also say, uh, in order to answer your question, that uh, I uh, specifically decided uh, a couple of years ago to switch from uh, learning general Chinese uh, and go into the business Chinese. Because I find that although it's called business Chinese, all the topics, all the uh, grammar that you learn, uh, is actually about your real-life daily situations. Paying bills, uh, opening paying account. bills, uh, arranging meetings, uh, printing documents, and uh, uh, traveling, um, buying tickets, uh, buying tickets. Exactly, and anything um, that you actually face uh, every day. Uh, in I would say, in any situation, whether it's your family, whether it's your work, whether it's your friends, uh, as opposed to learning 
about paintings in the museum uh, or uh, the history of uh, uh, all the dynasties in China, which is uh, the, the general Chinese dedicates a lot of time to that. Of course, I um, uh, like learning about those things, but I think uh, the bulk of my time I decided to dedicate to advancing my uh, business Chinese where I can actually eventually host the meetings in, in, the, in the language and uh, read uh, documents uh, in Mandarin as well. So uh, in order to make my life uh, less comfortable and more exciting in China, I was creating different tasks for myself on a daily basis, starting from something as simple as going to a post office to buy stamps. Uh, sounds easy, but not done as easy as <laughs> no. it sounds. Um, uh, all the way to uh, trying to open a local bank account. Uh, which was an extremely refreshing experience where I realized that despite of uh, all this hype about uh, Chinese banks being the biggest on the planet, when it comes to simple tasks like that, we realized that there is still a lot of old-fashioned paperwork <laughs> is involved. So you filled out quite a few forms. Quite a few forms, faced different requirements and tried to explain myself why is it that I actually want this account. Uh, and trying different types of accounts. So it was, uh, yes, a uh, uh, fascinating experience, uh, especially as I work in financial sector. It was really uh, relating to me, sort of, in my, in my daily work. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, traveling, uh, trying to sort the, the problems of missing utensils in the room and trying to solve, uh, trying to kind of describe what is it that I want. Uh, so, yes, uh, something that you would probably say is quite easy to do uh, when you speak your native language, but when you speak a foreign language, especially which has a lot of uh, different ways of expressing the same thing, uh -huh. it's not always easy to do. <laughs> right. So now, look, I've traveled to the bigger cities of China, to Beijing and Shanghai, and they're ultra impressive, you know, fantastic infrastructure, very high tech. Is it that high tech in the smaller towns uh, when you try to, say, book a ticket? Is it just a simple QR code driven, app driven process or has not technology percolated through the smaller cities as much yet? Temur, you know, this is probably one of the uh, stereotypes that I sort of broke myself uh, when I went to China and uh, spent time in the tier two and the tier three cities uh, that what we see in Shanghai or Beijing, you can actually see in many small towns as well. Anywhere from um, buying a ticket for for the buying a train ticket or uh, buying a SIM card, all the way to um, having extremely high tech and uh, amazingly beautiful from the point of view of architecture and design airports and buildings and, and railway stations and restaurants and coffee shops and the whole infrastructure of the towns um, as well. And what fascinated me the most is that, um, for example, if you, tra if you travel by bullet train, by the way, bullet trains, I had an impression, go to every single village in China. You, you can really see that even in the middle of the country, which is uh, 500 or 1,000 kilometers away from Beijing or Shanghai, you travel at the speed of almost 400 kilometers an hour. You have three or four high-speed tracks running alongside with each other on the raised, on the elevated uh, high-speed uh, railway for hundreds of miles. But not a single square meter of land is wasted underneath. Hmm. 
it's full of fields, you know, uh, agricultural uh, facilities, uh, warehouses, um, uh, water reservoirs. E- every single piece of land is utilized. It is, it is extraordinary you're saying that because I had a very similar experience from 35,000 feet a few years ago. So not your ground level view, but I flew on a day flight from Beijing, Shanghai to Beijing. It was a clear day, three and a half hour flight. So several thousand miles of vista down below me. And exactly the words that you just used were going through my head that I don't see any wastage of land, but I also don't see irresponsibly developed, unplanned or smoke belching towns. I see greenery. I see paddy fields and reservoirs, unbelievably intricate infrastructure connecting towns to other towns from rail to roads. Um, and, and that's where I came to the conclusion that the development is not skin deep. It's very deep. And, it's and deep you saw it at the ground yes. level. It's definitely deep-rooted in the mindset of people. And this is why uh, when I uh, travel to China to its uh, sort of inner provinces, and I saw all of this, and I saw how caring people are, how understanding, how uh, respectful they are towards each other, towards their, you know, uh, earth, and towards all, even all the visitors, uh, to their businesses, to their families, I realized that China has outpaced the rest of the world in its development and uh, desire to to be good decades ahead. Right. Now, when you go to, again, the big cities of China, of course, you know, there are entrepreneurs and, you know, tech billionaires and people are doing interesting things. Uh, in the smaller towns, are people still basically looking for a government job or have they also moved on and they want to be entrepreneurs themselves and they want to create interesting things? How do you see that shift I would say that uh, China has definitely made a big process uh, uh, progress in developing private sector uh, businesses and infrastructure for those businesses to be successful. There are, of course, uh, uh, places where you can see, still see, or I think they have the special open door recruitment days where you can observe a crowd of 500 people queuing into the government building uh, to apply for the jobs that they have. But... In my view, in uh, Chinese government, uh, it's not even about Chinese government, but I would say ch- uh, China definitely provides the infrastructure and the uh, legislation for the development of private sector. Um, that is definitely seen uh, in the smaller towns as well, because I was personally left under the impression that anything you want to, to do in China, whether it's order a pizza or to produce 20,000 leaflets of a certain marketing material will definitely be done almost instantly. Same uh, day service. And you will have at least 20 companies competing for the same thing and uh, uh, very transparent, very open, uh, very fast. uh, Of course, all focused on cost and the pricing. uh, But it's amazing how uh, fast things can be done. uh, And it's all done by your friends living around the corner. Right. Yes. Now, when I, again, coming from my big city angle, uh, walk through the streets of Shanghai, I see Starbucks and Tesla and Domino's and Pizza Hut and McDonald's, American brands everywhere. Are the smaller town Chinese as enthusiastic a consumer of Western brands and products? They are. So I was a witness of a Ferrari uh, store in a T3 city. (laughs) And I saw a pink painted Ferrari driving out which means that they, there is demand uh, and the uh, foreign companies did indeed penetrate into the 
uh, less affluent, so to, or maybe it's actually not so less affluent uh, as it seems, uh, regions of China. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, local brands uh, dominate uh, the deeper you go into the country. How are the local brands? I can probably say that um, I tried, I, I can't say sort of I, I've driven, let's say, um, I think there is a brand called Haval uh, okay. of the car. I never drove it, so I cannot say uh, or cannot give you my opinion, but anything to do with food is amazing. <laughs> So that's that's my that's my opinion, and I can imagine the yeah. same would be for clothing, given that I they are the number so, yes. one exporters. And I think it's it's actually uh, a big misconception that if it's made in China, it's supposed to be cheap. Uh, there are local brands, and uh, you, you you can go to a local uh, shopping mall, and you would be surprised how expensive even the local brands are. But still desirable. Therefore, the brand value is substantial. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this is interesting because this is something that is very close to our heart. Uh, we've been sort of doing a lot of research on the importance of brands in pushing a country forward, that in a knowledge-based, service-based economy, which is the world we're heading toward, the importance of establishing high-quality local brands is important. So I was curious, that's why, to hear from you that even in a smaller place of China, that there is desirability of local brands and there's high quality and high value. Um, now, I began this podcast by saying that we're not going to talk about COVID-19 whatsoever. And we're really not. But I do want to hear from you in case, you know, you were there for a bunch of weeks, you got sick or you had to go to the hospital or if you didn't, did you have any interaction with the Chinese healthcare system? Luckily, I did not. Good for you. But, but any I stories do, you've I, heard? I do yeah. have uh, quite a few friends uh, who are Chinese and foreign uh, citizens living in China who obviously had uh, experience in dealing with emergency cases uh, or going for the regular checkups. And I would say that the system, uh, I'm just sort of re relaying the uh, experience of my uh, friends who are foreign citizens. I think this would be the more colorful uh, example, that the system is actually very efficient. Uh, everything is bookable online. Uh, you don't have... Okay, you, you mean like doctor's appointments? Doctor's appointments and uh, prescriptions can be all received by emails. But the probably uh, experience that they've uh, had is similar to what I experience with, uh, in my daily job uh, when I deal with uh, Chinese companies is that there is definitely lack of English-speaking doctors. Mm -hmm. So the language barrier is probably the biggest problem you would face. Um, but otherwise, uh, no, I would say, sensations that happen to them, nothing uh, dramatic. Uh, but ultimately, when you go to the, to the hospital, your desire is to get better. Right. So eventually they did, and all the prescriptions worked, which means that uh, they got what they wanted, and <laughs> uh, they got understood, uh, and the doctors did their job well. Okay. Speaking yeah. of language barrier, of course, I know there is no Google in China, so I cannot use Google Translate, but I'm sure there are local translation online services where even if I were there and could not speak a word of Mandarin, I should be able to speak in English to one of those machines and they'll tell the doctor what I need. Uh, technically, yes, but the machines make a lot of funny technical mistakes. <laughs> I'm sure they do. So that's why I, I tried the, some of them maybe three or four years ago when I had to explain some something to a taxi driver. And we, we ended up uh, sort of talking live anyway because uh, the more we use the uh, live translating uh, app, uh, the more we were going nowhere. <laughs> uh, 
so uh, highly recommend uh, maybe use just the Baidu Translate, uh-huh. uh, which is an equivalent of Google Translate, uh, where you have to type messages and just show them maybe on the screen uh, rather than just use the, the voice recording uh, ones. I ex- experienced a reverse a couple of years ago in Singapore. I was walking down the road and a Chinese family approached me and they held a tiny device. It was not a phone. It was basically a dedicated translation device. And they started speaking to me in Mandarin and it was asking me, where is the hotel? <laughs> so uh, I've seen it work in the other round. Uh, Slava, uh, we talk a lot about aging in China. Uh, that the country has a very adverse demographic dynamic. Uh, cities tend to masks that because lots of young people are coming to the cities to work and the cities always feel vibrant. Even if you go to Tokyo, uh, one of the most you know dramatically aging society in the world, it feels very youthful. But when you go outside, you see towns and villages that are empty. Did you s- experience similar things in China? I have to say I did not experience any ghost towns uh, if we're talking about that part of the so-called Chinese reality. Uh, of course, I did see uh, a, like very large uh, development sites where you have maybe 10 or 20 buildings being constructed at the same time uh, with no lights in the windows. But I just take it as a sign of maybe they haven't been uh, open for sale yet. Uh, but uh, two things I wanted to say. Uh, when you travel, the deeper you go into the country, the uh, more of the elderly population you see on the streets. But I wouldn't uh, say that it's something negative because my impression is that population in China is extremely active. Um, all of this uh, seemingly retired people, they're actually engaged in jobs. Hmm. Uh, they have their own shops. They, you actually see them doing something. Um, and that's why I think uh, it makes China one of the fascinating places where uh, people remain active uh, business-wise well into their um, sort of older age. And that's what I think it's probably not as seemingly dramatic in terms of the uh, demographic changes and impact on the economy as we might think. Interesting. And culturally, is there ageism in Chinese culture? Are old people considered increasingly useless or there is significant amount of respect given to the elders, the grandparents and the uh, retired folk? I think when it comes to business and employment, I did not uh, hear, even the, uh, using the examples of my friends who work in China, uh, that this is the case. I think it, it's, uh, of, of course, it's a common trend uh, that um, the, let's say, the bigger the company is, the more international it is, or the, the more strategically important it is to the government, so to say, uh, uh, the less of the uh, elderly population you have uh, in client-facing roles or uh, foreign investors-facing roles. But when you go deeper in the country and the smaller the, the business is, uh, quite a lot. Right. So Interesting. Slava, so you are originally from Russia. Is there any similarity between Russia and China? Culturally, I feel like we're brothers and sisters. <laughs> really? Uh, I personally, the more I was learning uh, or the more I learned Chinese language and learn about the culture, I see a lot of similarities in uh, how we feel about certain things, how we express our opinion about certain things, what emotions um, and uh, feelings are depicted in poetry, in songs, 
in um, in actually in even in the daily language it's very very similar and this is what i think makes um, it even more enjoyable to learn the language uh, one of the parts for example is that uh, china uses a lot of examples to uh, describe certain characters or certain uh, points of human's character uh, to teach young children and generally uh, to give you lessons about the cautionary or, tales the, exactly they use a lot of uh, uh, nature related uh, examples plants animals uh, i would say probably in the, the beauty like sort of points of natural beauty meaning sunrise or sunset or the uh, blizzard in winter uh, the uh, blossoming flowers in spring and um, all the way to the actual um, single examples of certain plants or trees which then explain to you different types of characters of people and uh, teach you to um, to become better in life to sort of strive to uh, improve yourself and uh, develop certain uh, characters to sustain different challenges in life and the one that uh, I think um, there are I think Chinese people generally have gen great sense of humor so in all of these examples they uh, definitely have uh, a bit of humor as well, and I'll just give you uh, two examples. One is uh, probably more uh, on the sentimental side, uh, where uh, seasons, so for example, seasons. Uh, every season in China is associated with a certain uh, plant, which is uh, present in a lot of poetry and paintings and art. And art uh. So winter is, for example, is associated with a plum. A plum blossom, and there is a very deep lesson in that because uh, you think, okay, what's so special in the plum? But in China, uh, especially in the middle part of it, um, plum uh, trees blossom in January, and in January it's, it's pretty cold. Sometimes it's even snowing, so uh, you can imagine the picture: the uh, earth covered with snow. You have hills, endless. All the way to the horizon, but all covered with beautiful plum flowers, mm. pink or white or sort of red, and uh, it basically teaches you the lesson, uh, which says that uh, even when you think that the conditions are so harsh around you, there is always a place for beauty that will always find its way in life if you keep believing in it. So this is more of the sentimental one, but the one of the most of the funny one is um, the example of chrysanthemum which is uh, uh, representing autumn. And um, chrysanthemum is the flower uh, which blossoms the last. All the other flowers have already blossomed out and the season actually comes to an end because the next one is winter coming. Chrysanthemum blossoms sort of September onwards and it basically depicts uh, patience that one of the uh, tools which you can use to get rid of all the competition is just to be patient. <laughs> Everyone else already died out <laughs> and here you come. Here is your rock star moment. There is obviously uh, uh, no competition around and you will be seen beautiful. Just probably there is no one else. Fascinating. Yes. And, and you see parallels to these sort of uh, tales to in, in, in Russian? It, uh, definitely. Yes. Definitely uh, using the uh, examples of uh, natural events, uh, uh, the places of uh, outstanding beauty, uh, the plants and the animals uh, to describe different uh, emotions that we experience. 
uh, even the instruments, uh, the folk instruments that are um, present in Russia and China, uh, although they're very different in structure, but the sounds that they make are very similar. So that's why I think uh, it, you, you cannot not relate to this. And uh, uh, I discovered being in China that uh, Chinese uh, are great fans of Russian culture as well. Uh, they're big fans of Russian songs and Russian music, especially the classic one, uh, uh, which most of which were written uh, at the beginning or the middle of past century. And we had a great time with my Chinese teacher there singing Russian songs. I was singing in Russian, she was singing in Chinese, but the same <laughs> tune, uh, which was fascinating. Yeah, it bonds you really quickly and uh, you really connect to people. Uh, it's not even a matter of breaking the ice, but it's actually uh, really about uh, bonding, uh, which uh, means a lot. Yes. Brilliant. Uh, Slava, we have come fairly close to the end of mm. our podcast. One parting thought about lingering impression of your travels through China and uh, what what you know makes your sort of tugs your heart about China that is not necessarily part of popular perception. If I had to choose one thing that I would say is underappreciated and underrated by the rest of the world is that how uh, not only well educated but considerate and globally aware Chinese people are. It starts from uh, them, for example, during the school years, reading uh, as a day, as a sort of as a routine, as part of this uh, daily uh, school program, best classics almost of all uh, uh, main countries of the world, sort of economically speaking. Uh, so my teacher, I just discovered by uh, uh, sort of accident that uh, by the by the time she was in the seventh grade, she already read all the classics that I read in, in school in Russia, main classics that children read in, in French schools, uh, in schools in London, um, in Chinese language. Uh, and I, uh, during my years, do not recall a single piece of poetry or piece of literature uh, written by Chinese author that we would be reading in, in Russia, for example. And um, going all the way through uh, being uh, deeply aware of all the main aspects of life that matters to the outside world. We have an impression that because China doesn't have Google, they uh, ban Yahoo, they sort of uh, the great firewall of China. Create yeah. the great wall of China, exactly. Uh, they also create information barriers, which is completely not true. It doesn't make them any more impaired in that sense, in their ability to uh, reach out to the rest of the world, to actually have a keen desire to understand what is going on, uh, not just from the point of view of uh, getting the information, but actually uh, relating to uh, people outside and trying to make their life experience as uh, rich and uh, outgoing as possible. Fascinating. I think, you know, coronavirus notwithstanding, I have this deep desire to go travel through China after talking to you, Slava. Uh, thank you very much for your time and your insights. I hope you enjoyed your sugar-free Kopi C. And uh, I, I hope that, you know, our listeners uh, were touched by your experiences in China as much as I was. Uh, thank you very much. And this was uh, Kopi C with Taimur Beg. Thank you, Taimur. And uh, thank you to the listeners. And Taijian. Taijian.